During this time of year, uh, the autumn and uh, fall time, you'll find throughout the surrounding towns of, of Connecticut and certainly uh, beyond uh, New England and elsewhere, uh, corn mazes. I don't know how many young people or adults have enjoyed a corn maze this uh, this fall. I know when our children were, were younger, uh, we enjoyed many a corn mazes over uh, the years. I'm not sure who the, the inventor or a mastermind was behind the idea of creating a situation in which families with young children would willingly and gladly enter into an environment intended to get you lost. I'm, uh, I'm confident it's, it's caused many tears uh, to some children uh, for moments while they were lost in them. Uh, sometimes life can feel like a maze. The feeling of being lost. Uh, unsure of how you got to where you are now in your life, or the complexity of a difficult relationship. How will I navigate this moving forward? Or how will I get out of this financial struggle and complexity? So sometimes there is a complexity uh, to, to our lives. But oftentimes, in fact, biblically we might say most of the time, life presents us with simple choices. Not easy choices, but simple ones. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few find it. Those are Christ's words, and our Lord's words remind us that in the end, ultimately, though life may feel like a maze at times, and certainly there are complexities, it requires wisdom, the application of God's Word to the situations and circumstances of our lives. It can feel like a maze at times, yet ultimately it consists of only two paths. We see this through the Psalms, we see this in the teaching of our Lord. And as we continue in the story of Daniel... In the book of Daniel, while he and his companions have been exiled in Babylon, these two paths or choices, that is, life honoring the Lord, worshiping God, being about His kingdom, or walking the way of the world, are pressed before them. So we give our attention to Daniel into chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Verses 1 to 18. Listen now to God's word, Daniel 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, To all the people, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, 
you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all, as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God? who will deliver you out of my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. Having heard God's Word, I want to begin with this statement. If one seeks to make their life about their faith, uh, they may lose one or the other. If one seeks to make their life all about their faith, that their faith is going to permeate all of life, if they desire that, they they may end up losing one or the other, their faith or their life. And we might think that sounds a bit drastic, but in some ways it's essentially what Jesus has taught us in Matthew chapter 16, when he said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is, you seek to preserve life, this temporal life, and also the the old sin-defined life. In the end, you lose your life. Not only this temporary life, but life eternal in glory with God and in His kingdom. But you give up your life for the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom. That proves that that person... Uh, has genuine faith. 
This is what Daniel's companions, his friends, are essentially facing here in Daniel 3. And their predicament, their challenge in this chapter is closer to our situation and reality than than we might think. At first, we might think it's hard to relate to Daniel or his companions. They live in an ancient time, a completely different culture. They've been exiled from their home. How can we relate? But what are they experiencing? They're experiencing something that all believers can feel and experience. And that is the pressure. The pressure of a world. Of a sin-saturated world. A human, man-centered world. And the necessary choice between two paths. The kingdom of God. Or the kingdom of self. The kingdom of the world. And you can see this pressure by stepping back and asking, what is King Nebuchadnezzar up to here? He embodies, it seems to me, the world system that surrounds us. In verse 1, we're told in chapter 3 that the king makes an image of gold. Its height is 60 cubits, its breadth 6 cubits. This is 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. You think about that, it seems quite unstable. Perhaps there were other foundational parts to make this tower obelisk stable. We're told it was built on a plain, plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This picture brings us back to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. It was also built on a plain following the fall of man in Genesis 3, the flood in Genesis 6, the corruption of mankind, and then Uh, People begin to populate the earth again. And they build this tower. These are are pictures of human uh, arrogance at a high level. It's really a picture of seeking uh, self-sufficiency, human independence apart from the Lord. It's making a name for oneself. But but the picture is rich with irony, because just in the previous verses, at the end of chapter 2, in the dream that was unsettling the king's mind, you recall Daniel made known to the king what his dream was and meant. And that dream centered on an image, a statue. Remember the description of the statue, the feet made of iron and clay, the legs of iron, thighs of bronze, chest of silver, and a head of gold. And Daniel explained, each of these parts of this statue and image represent kingdoms that will come in succession. And that you, O king, are the head of gold. And Daniel said, the stone cut out of the image which will crush it and break it to pieces. When he said that, what did the king do? How did he respond in chapter 2, verse 47? Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. There was an acknowledgement by the king of Daniel's God, the God of Israel. But so it is with many people. An acknowledgement of God, but there's not true faith in this God. It has not sunk deep into the heart. And now, a couple verses later, what is the king doing? He's acknowledged this God... He's heard the dream. Now, he's making an image of gold. This great tower to represent his own power and to which people would bow down and worship. 
It's almost as if the king in a bout of amnesia forgot the less pleasant part of the dream. The stone crushing, the rock crushing the image. This everlasting kingdom that will come, that will be ushered in. And he's only thinking about and bathing in the pleasant part of the dream. He as the image of gold, the head of gold. So he's building on that. He need to strengthen the kingdom. And there's an all-important principle here, biblically, at work. Man, when he is left to himself, by nature, will use the gifts of God, the Word of God, the grace of God, to build his own little kingdom. That, that war is at, is at play within Christians' lives. Rather than humble oneself before the Lord and use the gifts and the Word of God to magnify God's kingdom. There's kingdoms in conflict. Important question for us daily. Whose, whose kingdom, whose reputation, whose name am I seeking to magnify? That question cannot be answered by simply observing the outward acts of people. As important as they are, we know. Pastors can preach sermons. Christian authors can write articles or books. Believers can do all kinds of acts of mercy, yet strongly motivated by really building a name for themselves. Serving the pride or ego, self-aggrandizement. True humility. It's a a missing, forgotten virtue in our uh, society. James, the apostle, tells us, humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. But Nebuchadnezzar is not merely exalting himself and his kingdom. He's calling for others to do so. It's another step. So I want us to see clearly the king's strategy because it reflects a strategy of the evil one himself and the world's system in which we live. Recall what the Apostle John said in our study through the letters of John. Do not love the world or anything in the world. The world being a system in which the evil one is at work in and through in all kinds of ways. Or Paul in Ephesians 6, your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Spiritual forces of darkness, Paul says. Nebuchadnezzar in the first eight verses builds a great tower, an image of gold. He calls for all his officials, prefects, governors, justices, magistrates to come to its dedication. And then in verse 4, the herald proclaims to all the peoples, when they hear the sound of the orchestra, the music, the band, the ensemble, you're to fall down and worship. And whoever does not shall be thrown into a fiery furnace. You need to get on board. There's consequences if you don't. So Nebuchadnezzar's scheme is to unite people around a common commitment. I would call it cultural conformity. We might call it a strong community consciousness. Here's how one author put it. It's no surprise after the dream, to find Nebuchadnezzar reasserting himself in a new burst of energetic social planning carried out with fresh urgency, idealism, and conviction. 
What he's now most concerned about is to exclude all possible sources of division and disintegration. Since he was an army man, we can even imagine him as desiring to create in civil life the same feeling of unity and community that he may well have experienced in his military campaigns. At any rate, the individual must be made to feel that he belongs to something worthwhile, vital, and basically attractive. Nebuchadnezzar's aim is to develop and unify culture. Many are the ways that the evil one and the world system will seek to conform you and me to its norm. It may be buying into the idea that a particular political party has a monopoly on what is true and good. It may be coming to believe that to be a Christian, one must adopt a particular theory of society or race or justice or a particular view of history. It may be buying into the idea that love toward others means not only respecting non-Christian views, but accepting those views as equally valid. For after all, morality is merely relative, says the culture. It may be like Nebuchadnezzar, conforming to the notion that all of society is really part of one family. We're all in the same boat together, collectively. And that there's only one kingdom, and it's the kingdom of the world. One of my favorite scenes uh, in the film Dead Poets Society, uh, starring Robin Williams, he plays a poetry teacher in an all-boys school. And on one afternoon, he takes them outside onto the courtyard, and he tells them to begin walking, but that they're to walk to their own rhythm, to their own form, to be creative, simply be yourself, to their own beat. Some begin uh, skipping, others are walking backward, others make strange uh, expressions uh, like an animal, uh, but everyone is kind of walking and moving to their own form uh, and, and beat, at least initially. But then within a minute or two, a couple of boys, two of them, then three, begin walking in a single file line. And they start walking to the same beat. Then more follow suit. And you start to hear clapping. Everything's moving in unison. Eventually, the whole class is walking in one long uh, single file line, marching to the same rhythm. And he was wanting to show and communicate a simple illustration, and that, and that is the power of, of conformity. Man's natural tendency is to conform. I was thinking back to my middle school and high school years. Clothing came to mind. Kind of a little bit silly, but, but at the time, uh, baggy clothes were in. Maybe that's back. I don't know. I didn't need baggy clothes, but I had baggy jeans. I don't even know how they stayed up. I was wrenching the uh, belt uh, tight, I suppose. But that, that's what was in. That's what, I, that's what I wanted to wear. That's what people were wearing around me. Now, now it's the, the skinny jean, it seems like. Or maybe anything goes, I don't know. That's just clothing. But, but conforming to ways of thinking, ways of behaving, ways of relating to and seeing others, that's much more serious. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is up to, to conform a people in worship and values in dedication to him and his kingdom, to worship him and perhaps the gods of the Babylonians. That's the world that we live in. 
The world system says, don't speak up about the Lord. It's rude. Don't bear witness about the truth of Jesus Christ. It's disrespectful. I heard recently in a sermon preached by Eric Metaxas as a guest preacher in a church, a Christian author, he said essentially these, these words. He said, we're living at a time when God in His mercy is allowing much to go to hell at the speed of light to wake His church up. It hit me. You can discuss later your thoughts on that, but in Daniel and his companion's day, exile, the result of God's judgment and the sin of God's people, the surrounding idolatry was in part to wake up the people of God. Let us remember, God tests us. He tests His people. Not that we would fail. He tests His people again and again through the Scriptures to prove to sanctify, to shape them. Can you picture the scene here in Daniel 3? All the king's officials gathered four times, we read. almost becomes humorous how many times this is repeated and emphasized. The, the gathering of his officials. It's to emphasize the pomp, the pageantry, the high esteem that is to be given to the king and his efforts. Here you have a sea of people. And what are they doing? Conforming. They're bowing down. Except for three young lads. Some think Daniel, if he's not in the picture here, if you recall in chapter 1, those exiled were youths. Some think Daniel was 17, perhaps a teenager. These young men, uh, their, their heads, they're standing tall. They're not bowing. You picture it, they're, they're kind, of, kind of sticking out. Not that they were trying to stand out, necessarily, but, but they would not simply bend to the worship and norm of the nation. Their devotion, their loyalty, their worship was to Yahweh alone. Because they loved the Lord. That's our greatest commandment to follow. Love the Lord our God. But we need to end on a couple of important points here. These, these young men are on the verge of facing uh, dire consequences for their devotion. First, this scene and the whole of Daniel as a, as a book and story is not centrally about man's devotion or courage in the face of pressure. It's, it's about that, but it's more than that. The story of Daniel and his companions, I think, is, is a miniature of the larger story of Scripture. Beginning in Genesis, as Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden as a result of their rebellion and sin. Or, or God's people finding themselves in slavery or exile, if you will, in Egypt. Or the days of Daniel, the, the hope that God presents His people with is not their own courageous devotion. Again and again, through the Scriptures, it is a Savior figure, a Redeemer who will come to enter the darkest of exiles, one in which no one else could go, 
death upon the cross to bear the sin of the people of God, to reverse the effects of the fall, to put death to death through resurrection, and to unite a people who would have life in Him. Daniel and his companions' predicament point us to the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have hope and life. It's pointing us to Him whom we read of throughout the Scriptures. Like in Isaiah 42, a text that we will be giving particular attention to next week. Behold My servant whom I uphold, My chosen in whom My soul delights. I have put My Spirit upon Him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up His voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break and a faintly burning wick He will not quench. Unlike the kings of Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus, this King, this Savior comes with a gentleness to protect His people. Our hope in life in a world filled with the pressure of a cultural conformity is not our own strength or smarts or wherewithal. It's life in God, life in Christ through His redeeming grace. And then finally, we should should take to heart the kind of worship and devotion of these young men. Because it's without condition. When, when faced with the potential dire consequence of their devotion, this burning, fiery furnace, and this question from the king, who will deliver you? They don't know whether they will be delivered from the furnace, ultimately. But their allegiance to the Lord is greater than escaping pain by conforming to the pattern of the world. Might those words, uh, those last couple verses, be our heart's desire? What is reflected in our hearts? If this be so, O King, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. He will deliver us. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. John Calvin, the reformer, his life motto, it comes from a letter that he wrote to a friend. I'll just close with this one line. This was his life motto. I offer my heart to Thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. I offer my heart to Thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Let's pray together. O Lord, how we thank You for the power of Your Word and grace. How we thank You for Your redemption, the shedding of Your Son's blood for our deliverance, for our forgiveness. And how grateful we are, O Lord, that You have made known to us Your kingdom, Your kingly rule, who You are as the Creator and Redeemer, the One who sustains and gives life. 
Lord, may we treasure You. May we be reminded and hear the words of the, the, of the great commandment to love You with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May You, Lord, be the, the central object of our life devotion. We pray, Lord, that You would give us wisdom as we live together as Your as your people, navigating uh, the culture in which we live. Above all, may, uh, may we serve You. May we bow down and worship to You. May our, our life's aim and passion be about extending uh, Your glorious kingdom, this kingdom of grace. And we pray that You would nourish us as Your people both from Your Word and here, Lord, at the table as we celebrate what You have accomplished for us. Feed us, Lord, with the bread and with the cup as we continue to honor and live for You. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.